And one of the things that I'm uh, considering this week that I want you guys to study with me is thinking about what Jesus was thinking about uh, the week leading up to his death, uh, where he was keenly aware of what he was going to endure. He knew exactly the fact that he was going to experience a degree of suffering, and yet thinking about what was on his mind, what allowed him to persist even in the face of of difficulty and persecution, uh, what caused him to persevere in that moment. Because Jesus was aware, he knew the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied about his death, that he would suffer at the hands of wicked men paying a penalty on the cross for our sins. And, and Jesus had, in reality, the same mindset his entire life, which was one of humility. That when Jesus came to this, this earth, right, he was born to a poor family, laid in a manger, right, in swaddling clothes, and, and he was raised in a poor community uh, and lived, once his ministry got started, without uh, a place to lay his head, right? Without, uh, without a location. He was just a drifter from, from village to village and would travel in a circuit. And, and he would have friends that would put him up, but, but he lived an incredibly humble life. And it's in that humility that, that Jesus was able to live and, and accomplish what God had called him to do, in which he considered other people to be more valuable than his own life, more valuable than himself. And so I want to take a look at some of Paul's writings in Philippians chapter 1, 2, and 3 today. We'll see if I make it to 3, I have no idea. Uh, but if not, I've, I've got some off-ramps to the sermon a little bit before that if we need to. Uh, so here we go. In, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is talking about this, this great salvation that we're invited to, Right, that we celebrate every week, except that the life that we live in light of what Jesus has done is now drastically different. Right? The life that we live is now drastically different. Paul's life is incredibly different as a result of what he uh, has experienced and change in Jesus. So Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 is where I'm going to pick it up and, uh, and be thinking about what Jesus thinks about. Be valuing what Jesus counts valuable. And so Philippians 1.29, it says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so when Jesus invites us into salvation and has us remain on this earth, His desire, his goal is not merely that we would believe in him. All right, obviously it's through believing and trusting in him that we experience forgiveness, we experience, right, friendship with him and God, right, as a a result of all that he's done, right? We are saved uh, because of his grace through our faith, through our placing our trust and belief in him. But it's not a life that is only about believing, that the Christian life is going to include seasons of difficulty, seasons of suffering, in which we will suffer more than, in instances, uh, those who are not believers. Because we're going to also suffer for the sake of Christ. And so Paul thinks about the way that Jesus loves us, thinks about who Jesus values, and experiences suffering similar to 
right? The way that Jesus experienced suffering. And Paul chose to endure that suffering because he knew other people were worth more than him, all right? And and namely, other people knowing Jesus was worth more than his experiencing comfort and avoiding that suffering. And so Paul continues in Philippians 2, and those, those chapter breaks weren't there when Paul wrote his letters, right? So it's a continued thought. Verse 1, uh, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy, all right? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. All right, so Paul, right, in his own suffering, writing this from prison, being persecuted for his faith in Jesus and for proclaiming the gospel to others, he's experiencing suffering, and he says, listen, complete my joy, right? He finds joy in knowing that the believers that he introduced to Jesus are living a life in which they are loving others, right, that they're demonstrating comfort to one another, that they're encouraged because of what Jesus has done, right, that they're showing affection and sympathy. And he says, and show this same love, the same love that, that Jesus had for us, right, and be in one mind, the same mind that Jesus had towards all of reality, Right, that Jesus correctly understood where he was in the timeline of history, right, the purpose for which he was sent, uh, that he was living in right thinking regarding even his own suffering. And right, Paul is almost reminding himself of these truths and then reminding the church in Philippi as well that they too are going to suffer for the sake of Christ, but that that suffering is worth it. That it's important to have the same thinking that Jesus had about that difficulty that we face. And so then Paul kind of brings it down to uh, correcting our wrong thinking. That the, the thinking of a believer is going to be different than the thinking of other people. All right, verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so this is one of the the keys to to thinking like Jesus, one of the keys to to thinking like Paul in this instance, in which we, we perceive other people differently because of what Jesus has done for us. All right, that, that we think of others, we count others as more significant than ourselves. And so in, in all of your accounting, in all of your measurement of other people's worth, persistently, repeatedly consider other people as being more valuable than you are. Right? That, that's what Jesus thought about. That's what Paul is thinking about in his own difficulty. Right, considering and counting other people as being more important than he is, right? And, and, and think about like, right, Paul. Right? You'd probably be like, he's he's a pretty important guy, right? Like he's done a lot of stuff. And even though we could come up with a list of reasons why Paul is really important, even if it was true, it doesn't matter. Paul says, in the way you count, in the way you assess someone's worth, count them as being more important, even if you could build a whole case and have a whole resume as to why maybe you think you are more important. 
Paul's like, it, it actually doesn't matter if you are more important than them or not. What matters is how do you count them, right? Do you count them as being more valuable, more important than you? And that's the same kind of mentality that Jesus had that allowed him to endure the cross, right? It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, right? That Jesus recognized that his life spent meant more people would have and experience life and experience God's love than could have otherwise. That he counted us as being more important than his own comfort, right? Than him being rescued by a legion of angels off of that cross, right? Jesus counted us as worthy of his death. And what, what Paul is saying here is that the Christian life, the Christian mentality, is to count other people in much that same regard. That even if you encounter people that might frustrate you, right, right, might uh, just irritate you to all sorts of ends, that you need to recognize that Jesus thought they were worth his blood being shed. Right? Jesus has already assessed their value and considered their worth is his death. And we have to treat them the same way. And so verse 4, I think I've already got it up there. Yeah, I do. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so this is the Jesus kind of thinking. This is the one mind that Paul wants us to have and share in, is that, right, we don't do things out of selfish ambition, and we think about the interests of others. Okay, that, that we change our thinking. Because by default, I want to point out that we, we look after our own interests, all right? Like, by default, that, that's not something that has to be trained, it's not something that has to be taught. And, and Paul echoes that theme in Ephesians 5, talking about, uh, he's paralleling it to marriage, but he says that no one neglects their own body, right? We care for it, we cherish it, we nourish it, right? We are, by default, after our own interests, but that's not how Jesus thought. That's not the mentality with which Jesus lived, including in the same week, uh, final week of his life, right? That's not how Jesus considered or perceived the world. He was not merely looking out for his own interests, and he would have been tempted to look out for his own interests, right? He was even, the, the means through which God was saving the world was being mocked, saying, Jesus, we would actually believe in you if you'd rescue yourself, if you would save yourself and us also, right, said by the, the thieves on his sides, right, then we'd believe in you, right? Prove to everybody that you are the Messiah. Prove to everybody that you're the Son of God. And, right, Jesus demonstrating his great love for humanity, desiring people to come to repentance and believe in him, that would have been tempting. That what, what if there was an easier way for humanity to be saved? Right? What if there was a way in which, oh, well, he'll just show how he's all-powerful and rescue himself, maybe more people would have believed. That's what they were claiming anyway. But yet Jesus already knew the answer to that question. There was no other way. He prayed about it the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, right, Father, if at all possible, let this cup of judgment pass from me. Right? Nevertheless, let your will be done, right? Jesus chose to set aside his own comfort. Jesus chose to set aside his own interests for the sake of other people. And it was 
us that he was thinking of, right? It was humanity that he was thinking of when he realized there's no other way for people to be saved. That God the Father's answer to that question was there is no other way. And so although it would have been tempting on the cross for him to think about his own comfort and his own needs and to rescue himself and even be like, well, maybe some people would actually believe as a result of that. That wasn't the case. That wasn't truth. That wasn't reality. And so we too need to think like Jesus, where we consider the interests of other people. And what's, what's perplexing about this, I mean, throughout all of Paul's writing, he'd point out that we often don't know our own best interest, right? That we will regularly be at war with ourselves, the flesh against the spirit, where we, we will <coughs> regularly have desires that are in conflict and, and war against our mind in Christ, right, that are working against regularly the things that would be best for us, right, that there will be things that we perceive are good for us, things that, a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction, all right, and so like, when it comes to thinking of our own interests, we, all, we don't always know the, the best thing for us. We need to yield to God's word in those regards. And even so, when we're thinking about the best interests of other people, God's interest in them won't necessarily agree with their own self-interest. All right? What, what, what God says in his word would be most fruitful and most blessed for their lives might disagree with the very people that we love and are trying to serve, right? That they're thinking, no, 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 that's actually not a blessing to me, right? When in reality, it is. And so it's actually like a, a really difficult path to walk when not only are we, we're not looking out for our own interests, we might not even be looking out for the self-perceived interests of others, right? We're, we're seeking God's best for, for other people and all of humanity, And so Paul continues, he says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, think like Jesus. All right, think like Jesus. Right, because as we hear those previous verses, we might be like, how on earth am I going to live, right, not doing anything out of selfish ambition? How am I going to live not seeking my own interests and my own desires and to be thinking of other people, counting other people as being more important than myself? That's so hard for us to do. And the way we do it is by having the same mindset that Jesus had, right? He demonstrated, he modeled it for us. And, and, and he says, right, have this mind among yourselves, right? Make up your mind to think like Jesus, Okay, like that, that it's possible even amongst believers, even in a church that Paul is writing to, that we can slip back into thinking like the rest of the world, where we can slip back into thinking about us all the time. That we can slip back into thinking that maybe I need to avoid suffering at all costs, right? Maybe, maybe that is what I need to do. Maybe I do need to only look about caring and cherishing and nourishing my own body, right? That's what we would slip into. But Paul says, don't allow that to happen to you, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that, that language is significant, but sometimes I think we can over-spiritualize it, right? Where it's like, in Christ Jesus, we are the righteousness of God, 
right? We, we, we need to remind ourselves and recognize what he has accomplished for us, that we are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? And, and we need to remind ourselves we actually can think like Jesus because we have that mind in Christ Jesus, that when we live in accordance with the reality that we've been granted, the kingdom that we've become a part of, right? We can think like Jesus. Paul says it even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, like we, we have this. This is something that we can think like Jesus, right? Where, where we can see the kingdom of heaven because we have been born again. Right, where Jesus said in John 3 that, right, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Right? Reality won't make sense to the person who has not encountered and experienced what Jesus has done for them. <clears throat> and so this is how we, we think like Jesus. Let's go back to Philippians 2.6. Jesus Christ, right, who, though he was in the form of God, all right, Jesus was... With the Father, Jesus is God, right? All things were made through him, right? That that he was the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was in the form of God, okay? So, like, we can't doubt that. Jesus was 100%, right, equated with God. He was God in the flesh dwelling among us. But notice this, that Jesus in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so just the way that Paul is teaching us to count, right, like not the math lesson, but we're teaching to count other people as being more important than ourselves, Jesus did not count equality with God as something that had to be held on to desperately as though like, oh no, I can't lose this, I can't let people consider the possibility that I might not be God. When in in fact, Jesus, although he was God, although he was in the form of God, although he was equal with God and continues to be, right, Jesus chose to not grasp that. All right, it was true that Jesus is more important than all of us, but yet he lived counting other people as more important than himself. Right, it's incredible. It's incredible. Right, and so he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So this is the God that we worship. Right? God himself chooses to humble himself, empty himself, and chooses to come and serve. This is incredible. This is the God that, that loves us. This is the God that we worship. Right? The God who is humble. This is humble Jesus. Right? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. All right, Jesus was born in the likeness of men. So he is in the form of God, but he's also born in the likeness of men. He's put on humanity and lived among us, demonstrating God's heart and God's love for us. And Jesus lived a life that was humble, right? He emptied himself. He put on the form of a servant. And so we too are to live a life in humility, right? And that's something that, once again, doesn't come naturally to us. But this is incredible, right? This is awesome. Humility is a good thing. And just to convince the flesh side of us, just to con- convince our earthly thinking, humility is a good thing. 
It says this in Proverbs 3.34. Towards, towards scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. All right, humility is this awesome good thing for us to enjoy. Right? It's, it's a good thing. Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. All right, the very times in which we're trying to build ourselves up in the sight of others are moments in which our flaws are exposed to their greatest degree, right? And we, we are disgraced in the sight of others when we're trying to puff ourselves up. But yet, with the humble is wisdom, all right? Humility is this good, good thing that God wants for us to have. And so even if, all right, I know this is like weird thinking, if I wanted to have the most blessed life, if I was truly living the most selfish, I would live humbly, right? And I mean, I can't do that because in my flesh, if I'm living selfishly, I won't be wise enough to do that, right? I'll be caught up with chasing all of my own desires and all of these other things. But nonetheless, what's truly best for us is to walk in humility. And right, and that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Check out Matthew 10, or Mark 10, although Matthew says a lot of the same stuff. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He said, this is how humanity lives. This is how humanity thinks. That those who are in leadership abuse it. They use it for a sake of building up their own kingdoms. But verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Right? Amongst the followers of Jesus, this is not how we live. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Right, that this is the life that Jesus lived, and this is the life that Jesus invites us to follow. In which, right, we're counting others as being worth more, as being more important than ourselves, that we're, we're serving like he served. And then he, I love this, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I like that word, even. Right? Even the Son of Man, even Jesus in the form of God, he chose to come and serve. Jesus, the most important, chose to serve. Jesus of greatest value chose to give his life, to pour out his value for the people that he considered valuable. Right? That, that Jesus is doing this, and if even the Son of Man does this, who are we to think that we don't have to? Right? Like, who are we to, to think, no, 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 other people should serve me? Right? Who are we to, to not live humbly? Who are we to not be willing to serve other people as we serve God? Right? And so, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And what's interesting about this Son of Man phrase, it's, it's this title that Jesus most frequently as ascribes to himself in the gospel. And in our language and in our context, son of man is, is kind of like a weird idea. It literally just means a, a human one, right? Someone who is human. And we might be like, okay, like, you know, even critics might say, see, Jesus is just saying he's a human, 
over and over again. But it's actually the phrase, son of man, which declares his deity even more so than the phrase son of God in somewhat of an oxymoronic way. That the son of man phrase is actually indicating, he, the, the high priest, as we'll see later, calls Jesus blasphemous for referring to himself as the son of man. Right? That this is actually like a really big deal. This is a huge deal. Right? Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. And I want to pull from the, the passage in the Old Testament that Jesus is referring to, Daniel chapter 7. All right, Daniel, uh, you might remember him, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys. Uh, we've got the coloring pages up there, I'm sure. So here it says, Daniel, right, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, all right, like a human, okay, in the form of man, right? And he came to the Ancient of Days, capitalized here because Ancient of Days is referring to God, right, who always was and always will be, eternal. And he was presented before him, and to him, that is the Son of Man, the one like a Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And Jesus is saying, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That in his earthly ministry, the Son of Man, one who all creation will one day serve him, he chooses to be a servant of all, right? Dying, giving his life on the, on the cross, Right? And this is the Son of Man that Jesus is referring to. It says, 14 continued, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is who Jesus perceived of Himself as. And so when Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man, right, saying like that the, son of, the Sabbath was made for the Son of Man, right, that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that all of these things, he's using this language that for the Jewish listener familiar with their Old Testament, they would have immediately been connecting this title that Jesus is giving to this one to whom all dominion is given, to, to whom a kingdom is awarded that will never end, one that the Ancient of Days recognizes and grants authority to, Right? One that ends up receiving worship and is served by all creation. Right? This is a big deal. And, and this, even this passage for Daniel, I imagine, was perplexing. Right? How could God grant to someone who appears to be human, someone like a son of man, all of this authority? Why would God share a throne with someone like a son of man? But yet we now see in Jesus completed that Jesus is in the form of God but came in the form of a man who presented himself as a servant. And so check out verse 8 back in Philippians 2. So Paul says, And being found in human form, right, in the likeness of, this, of a son of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Jesus came in human form. Right? Jesus was in the form of God and yet came and presented himself humbly in human form. And check out what Jesus does when he's, when he's in human form. 
right? Jesus is given a body, Jesus has a mind, and yet he lives a life that is so contrary to what we would perceive God should present himself as, right? But check this out in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, right? When, when Jesus came in human form, this is what he says. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Okay, he's, he's indicating that God the Father does not take pleasure in, is not pleased with the old covenant, the sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls and all of these things as a means to, to deal with and cover the sin of humanity. He says, that God, that wasn't what you were really after, and yet you've given me a body. And what does Jesus choose to do with his body? Right? He chooses to honor God with it. He says, verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Jesus identifies this fact. He says, you've given me a body, but instead of me taking my body and using it to, to seek its own desires, to pursue its own interests, I'm going to choose to honor my Father in this body, even being willing to give my body as a sacrifice so that humanity can experience forgiveness, all right? Jesus chooses not to use his body to seek after its own lusts, but chooses to honor God with his body. Let's see, verse uh, 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and the burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. It's talking about covenants here, right? Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus says, right, this is the blood of the covenant, right? This bread, this is my body that is broken for you, right? He's talking about the fact that God is, is doing away with this old system of the law and is making a new way, a new and living way for us to experience life and salvation and forgiveness. Verse 10, and that by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so when Jesus was given a body, Jesus chose to use that body to honor God, right? That, that we can, in our bodies, think that all of these desires and things at war with our spirit is something that we should pursue at times. We, we fall back into carnal thinking, into earthly thinking, and yet the right way to live in this body is to present our members as members as unto righteousness and not as members as unto sin. Right, that we should live out this life where we're not pursuing our own desires but are choosing to honor God in these bodies. So back to Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so Jesus lives a life in which he's humble enough to obey Right, in which he's humble enough to obey God even at the cost of tremendous suffering. Jesus considers obedience to his Father as something that is worth it, even in light of incredible suffering. 
right? And so this is our example, right? That we too should live this life out, have a mind in us like Jesus where we think about life, we think about sin, we think about humanity, we think about God, we think about others in the same way that Jesus thought about those things. And that includes, right, being willing to be obedient to our Father, Right? To, to offer our lives up as a living sacrifice as unto the Lord. And Jesus does so even to the point of death on the cross. And, and this is so interesting. We're going to link this Daniel 7 theme of the Son of Man being lifted up and exalted. And we're going to look at this moment in which Jesus suffers and dies for humanity. And how those two moments are actually one and the same. In, in this unusual way. In Matthew 26, Jesus is at one of these kind of mock uh, trials that happen in the middle of the night as they're trying to find a way to put to death this one that they find so offensive. And in Matthew 26, verse 63, it says, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, I believe, said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right? And so at this trial, he's demanding of Jesus, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come that we have been waiting for, that the prophets have prophesied about? Tell us, Jesus. Right? In verse 64, Jesus said to him, you, you've said so. <laughs> right? You've said it, that I'm the Christ, the Son of God. But then he flips the language again and goes back to this son of man title. But Caiaphas immediately recognizes what Jesus is doing. He says, but I tell you, from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus, in the moment of his trial, moments before his death, he's identifying with the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one to whom all creation is going to serve. One who God himself lifts up and is, is granting him a throne to rule and have dominion forever. And Jesus says this to the high priest at one of these trials. And, and so, so Jesus said it in verse 65, the high priest gets it. The high priest knows the reference. He knows his Old Testament Bible. Verse 65, the high priest then tore his robes. This is actually an outward sign of repentance. As if like, I can't even believe the things I'm hearing. This is horrible that you have just said this. Right? And he said, he has uttered blasphemy. Right? He's presented himself as being equal with God. Right? What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And so what's interesting is moments before Jesus' death, moments before all of the suffering that he goes through, Jesus points to that experience and says, Hey, Caiaphas, from this point on, as I'm about to enter into all of this suffering, you will see the Son of Man entering into his kingdom entering into his reign, that this is actually going to be a coronation of Jesus. And consider this, that through Jesus' suffering, right, he's given these royal purple robes, that after he's been whipped, they put the robes on him and allow the blood to dry and then tear the robes off again, 
right? And these purple robes are this symbol of a king becoming, right, experiencing and coming into his kingdom, right? Jesus is crowned. He's given this crown of thorns and he's mocked, right? He's given a crown as a king would receive a crown, right? And blood pours down and he does this on our behalf that Jesus is experiencing his, his kingdom and he's saying, Caiaphas, you are going to see the son of man experience and come into his kingdom in this way. That Jesus is lifted up and raised up on the cross for all to see. In the same way that a king would be lifted up on his throne. And right, and as if the illusion wasn't subtle enough, they even put a sign above his head that says, the king of the Jews. That Jesus looked at, Jesus perceived this suffering, this obedience that he was demonstrating to the Father for our sake as his coronation moment in which the Son of Man enters into and experiences his kingdom. All right, this is exactly the same language that Jesus, right, pulls from Daniel chapter 7. And what's interesting is Caiaphas says, what further witnesses do we need? Right? They'd been trying to get together some false witnesses to make these accusations against Jesus that they would have the authority to put him to death. And at Jesus' own claim, Caiaphas knows what it means. Jesus recognizes himself as God. And he says, we don't need any more witnesses. Right? He's, just, he's admitted to guilt of believing that he is an equal with God. But now consider this. Let's echo that question back. Jesus experiences this death on the cross, but then is raised from the dead three days later. What further witnesses do we need? Jesus has proven that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the Messiah, the one that God sent, the suffering servant from Isaiah who bore our sins that we could experience comfort, right? That bore our sins that we could be forgiven, right? And he's raised from the dead victoriously. And it was, in fact, this coronation ceremony. Jesus is lifted on high. And so let's go back to Philippians 2, verse 8. This is like the third time I've read this one, but it's good. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is not just the suffering servant in Isaiah. He is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. He is the one that has been lifted on high, and due to his obedience and humility, he is now exalted for all to see. And the right response to Jesus is that we should bow our knees to him. The right response to Jesus is to confess that he is Lord, one who is worthy of our obedience, right? That he is, in fact, God, and that God has raised him from the dead. 
right? This is the right response. And, and whether or not in this life it's recognized, all of creation, all peoples, every nation will one day realize that He is Christ, the Son of God. And so just as Jesus lived a life in which he was willing to humble himself and to value others and to count others as being more important than himself, in in which he was willing to come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, we too, with Paul and the church in Philippi, will experience suffering for his sake, right? Because we count other people as being more valuable than us. Right? We realize that Jesus died for them also. And they are worth our affection. They are worth our love. They are worth our pursuit. That, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he then gave us the same mission. And it's not about us. Right? This is the mind that we must have among us. That we would be of the same mind. That we would think like Jesus. That we have been given a body on this earth. We've been given time on this earth. And we need to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did, which is to choose to obey our Father and to honor God in everything that we do. And fortunately, even when we fail to do those things, we can still testify of God's goodness and His grace that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus is worthy of our obedience. Jesus is worthy of our yielding to his authority, right? Jesus is worthy of being declared as the Son of God, right? As being declared as our Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is incredible that you as God chose to humble yourself Right, If we in our own creativity would have had a God after our own likeness, that is not how it would have been. It's unfathomable, it's, it's unimaginable that you as God, creator of all things, would enter into your creation and to experience suffering to this degree and to do so for us. And so Lord, we think upon that this morning. We worship you because of it. We thank you that you are no longer the poor boy laid in a manger. You are no longer a poor carpenter. You are not just a good teacher. You are not only the suffering servant, but you are the Son of Man. And the right response to you is to serve you. That we deem that since you gave your life for us, that we who now live should live as unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.